This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compelling and compassionate conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this show is made possible by my paid subscribers at Substack.com. Substack is an amazing platform, and all of my content has been moved to Substack. So that includes my weekly essays and this podcast and my paid subscriber content. Please go to sacredtension.substack.com, sign up. You will get me in your inbox multiple times a week like that creepy stalker who will just never, ever leave you alone. It'll be like a slasher movie. No matter how many times you want to get away from me, I will just keep breaking into your house at 3 a.m. to yell at you about non-theistic religion and theology. So because you definitely want that life for yourself, please do sign up on Substack. It's super easy, literally just takes two seconds. So just go right now, pause it. You don't even have to pause it. It takes that fast. Just go to Substack.com. Nope, go to sacredtention.substack.com. There is a link in the show notes. Enter your email in the little screen that pops up and you're good to go. And I will haunt you for the rest of your life like I'm Scientology. Please do that. This bitch needs money. Oh, and also, if you go paid, $5 a month is all I ask. If you go paid, that really, really helps. It keeps this content going. Uh, it maintains me and it keeps me from, you know, having to cut out my own organs with with rusty Victorian era instruments to sell to strangers on the side of the street here in Appalachia to make money. Because listen, my only marketable skills are useless things like writing and philosophy and my voice. And that's it. That's all I have. So please pay me. That's all I ask. <laughs> okay. I think I've said enough about Substack. It is an amazing platform. And also, it has some wonderful accessibility features. If you download the Substack app, it will read my articles to you, as well as the articles of any other writer you subscribe to. It also has a really cool feature called Notes, which is like Twitter, but not awful and not owned by Elon Musk. And no advertisements. And it's just writers being really nice to each other. So definitely check that out as well. There are some amazing things on Substack. Please subscribe. Please give me money. I beg of you. Okay. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Lauren Schufrin to the show. They have written a fabulous book called Buddha and the Bard. Did I get that right? Or is it Bard and the Buddha? The Buddha and the Bard. You got it. You got it, Stephen. Amazing. Well, welcome to the show. It is wonderful to Thank talk you. to you. It's so delightful to be here. Um, so before we get started, just tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, the <laughs> I think the I think the answer to to who I am might uh, in part unfold itself here. It's certainly the ongoing inquiry. So I kind of want to say in response to that one. We'll see. Perfect. Um, what I what I do, I write. I'm a writer. I've been doing, you know, some form of writing. I think since I was in the fifth, I actually have a very clear memory of a fifth grade poetry lesson, which changed everything for me. But 
you know, certainly as long as I've been an adult. Um, for, for many years, that was in the form of poetry. I did my MFA at San Francisco State, which is, you know, what my first book came out of and spent many years in a really uh, vibrant and beautiful uh, poetry community in the Bay Area. And then moved on to UC Santa Cruz, where I did my PhD in early modern British literature. So did some writing in a more scholarly context there, um, you know, still writing poetry, but doing the attending to the grind in the way one needs to attend to in the way of, you know, publishing articles in peer reviewed journals and such. Understood. And about five, yeah, <laughs> about five years ago, when I, I finished my dissertation, I ended up leaving academia. And so I'm in, of all things, I'm in B2B software now, which believe it or not, Shakespeare played a role in that transition. Um, so I've been doing content strategy for the past five years or so. So writing in a business context, I've continued to write about Shakespeare in the meantime. He's magnetic and unputdownable, um, which is how, of course, you and I got connected through this book. And I guess I'll just say right now, in the present moment, you know, really trying to make my way out of software right now and, and back to the kind of writing I love. Um, mm. dhar dharmically, I don't feel quite aligned. So just, you know, in the present, taking on clients who are you know, artists, somatic practitioners, uh, psychedelic guides, and such, and doing some some ghostwriting for them. So, I, I got a, I have a lot of Mercury in my astrological chart, is what I've been told. And Mercury is the god of communication. So, truly, the the moment I picked the pen up, I didn't really, I haven't put one down yet. We'll say. I love that. Yeah. So, so you have this fantastic book called Buddha and the Bard, and it is basically about the intersection of Buddhism and Shakespeare and kind of in the intersection where Shakespeare's stage meets Buddhist scriptures is the subtitle of this book. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that this combination might not necessarily be intuitive to people, but but when I saw this book, it immediately spoke to me because I love Shakespeare. I was in all of the Shakespeare plays when I was in high school, and that was such a formative, powerful experience for me, being like the nerdy gay kid. And of course, Shakespeare is where I found my home. And as an adult, I've really found my home in secular Buddhism as well. Mm -hmm. And I've really mm -hmm. found a lot of joy and tranquility in secular Buddhism. And so I have these two loves of literature and in particular Shakespeare, and I have a love of Buddhism and meditation, uh, but it just never occurred to me to combine these two things, to find the intersections there. So what was it that made, what, what was it that made you realize that there was a connection there? It's mm, mm, a great question. And I, you know, I, I wanted to say I, I was thinking a little bit, really for the first time, I mean, you, you know, you and I have known that this conversation is up and coming for a couple weeks now. Um, but I, as I was going to bed last night, I was actually thinking about um, the title of your podcast for the first time in the context of this conversation and in the context of this project, right? And I was, I was thinking about what it felt like and really what it's felt like all along to sort of take these two things these two potentially really disparate things and and put them together. And for me, it was really a question of like, what's the sound they make, right? When you when you place them next to each other, like what are the resonances? What happens in that in that space between? Or like what's the third term that comes out of them? And so the 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 tension that's possibly there, but also 
the sort of sacredness. I mean, one of the things, and then then I will begin to answer your question. But I, you know, one of the things that I just so came to adore, specifically, I would say, in the context of teaching Shakespeare in the classroom, was his plays demand so much attention and attention is fundamentally a, a form of love right as soon as we decide that we're gonna we're gonna bring our whole selves to something and sit with it and observe and witness and walk around it we're, we're loving that thing and so and there's there's the sacred there's the holy of that and so i i just want to say first of all I, i'm so resonating right now with the, with the title of your podcast alone oh, um I'm so, so thank you in terms of my my sort of history with these two things it's you know, admittedly, at least the Buddhist part, I would say, is is pretty recent. And I'd be happy to share more a little later about how the book came to be. But it, it started in, in graduate school. You know, I, I started practicing yoga while I was writing my dissertation. I think anyone who has embarked on a project like that would probably tell you that these are really slow, methodical, uh, reverent days, you know, I'd really come to think of my my dissertation work as a as a devotional practice, and yoga was a uh, a physical practice that sort of met me in that devotional space that I was hanging out in. And you know, yoga led to a seated meditation practice, kind of organically. A seated meditation practice led to a sort of mindfulness set of mindfulness practices, you know, off the cushion, and you know, all of this really aligned with the life of inquiry in, in graduate school I had already chosen. So that was happening as, a, as its own separate thing, right? Separate to the degree that any of this can be separate. But, you know, in the, in the meantime, I was I was teaching Shakespeare, um, which I did for, for eight years at UCSC to undergraduates. And I recall so clearly um, this day that I was I was teaching the Merchant of Venice, and there was something that came up in the in the conversation that we were having, and I, I realized in this moment that Shakespeare is a kind of mindfulness teacher, and I can say more about that conversation if you'd like. But I mean, ultimately, it was really just just this realization that led me led me to this project, which began as an Instagram account, actually, of all things, mm. um, called Shakespeare and Mindfulness, and then you know many iterations of the book, but. You know, I, I guess I, I would just say that Shakespeare has a way of writing characters that reveal us to ourselves. In fact, the, the sort of great literary critic Harold Bloom um, once said, you know, Shakespeare read us better than we will ever read him. And I, I think if we're really willing to look closely and do the hard reading that these plays demand, we can see that, you know. So I started. I started writing about reading Shakespeare as a mindfulness practice. Mm. Um, that was where it began. That's a, that's fabulous. So there are several things in there that stand out to me. One is your description of working on your dissertation as kind of a devotional practice, and mm. and this is something that stands out to me. I I think that we have really disenchanted our world in a lot of ways. By us, I mean culturally. And I think that there's real value in in seeing these daily liturgies and whatever we give our attention to as, as devotional, as religious, as spiritual, as mystical. And so I really appreciate that language because that's very much the approach that I try to take. I manage a grocery store. That's my day job. And I see that the grocery store is like my monastery. And seeing the grocery store as, as the monastery where I go to serve 
brings a completely different energy. It brings a completely different vibe and attitude to my work. So I love your description of your dissertation as a devotional practice. And and also just I I went I've gone on a very similar journey with you. So I I started with yoga about a decade ago and over a decade ago now this was this was in college and then I became a yoga teacher and then covid happened and shut down everything and then I transitioned very smoothly into out of teaching so I don't teach anymore so I transitioned out of teaching and transitioned into more of a seated meditation practice and it makes complete intuitive sense to me it makes complete intuitive sense to me that you would go from that seated practice into f- discovering mindfulness everywhere. Because I think one of the great lessons of mindfulness is that the purpose of of a seated meditation practice is really to blur the boundary. I mean, depending on, I guess, whatever tradition you're in, but but one uh, depending on your tradition, the, one of the purposes is to really kind of blur that line between mm. between life and your seated practice and to realize that there's no state accessible to us in a ste- in a seated practice that isn't also accessible to us kind of out in the world, right? Beautiful, yeah. So it, it makes sense to me that you would kind of move from a seated practice to realizing, oh, there's there's Buddhism here in Shakespeare. <laughs> that that transition that process makes complete sense to me intuitively. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you you start the book with. The quote, all the men and women merely players. So <laughs> what is that line from and, and how does that pertain to Buddhism and the trajectory that you are going on in this book? Um, that line is spoken by a character named Jake Lees. And as you like it, it's one of those, I think it's probably one of Shakespeare's most famous lines, but I think very few people actually know where, where those lines came from. You know, I think this 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 maybe goes back to well, I think maybe this is a continuation of our of our conversation about where these two things link and what what value can be found in this linking, placing side by side, juxtaposing. However, I'm 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 always trying to think about how these two are coming together in a, in a, in a sort of nonviolent way, right? Like not not reading through a lens, but I'm still working on what the language feels like around it. Hmm. And I, you know, I think I think one place to to start answering that question is, is Shakespeare's context, right? Which is the stage, which is exactly what Jake Lees is, is speaking to at this point in time. Say, say the name one more time of the character. Uh, Jake Lees. Uh, okay. J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. Yeah. Got it. And, you know, there's a there's a pretty long history, I would say, in, in spiritual traditions. I'm sure you've heard this uh, in many iterations uh, over the years of using the theater as a metaphor for not only human incarnation, but also spiritual practice, right? I, there are two people I quote actually in the, in the introduction to that book. One is Mark Epstein, who is a, a Buddhist psychotherapist, and he describes mindfulness as watching everything that unfolds in the theater of the mind and the body. Ram Das, who I also mentioned, you know, described spiritual work as coming to understand that the entire drama of life is a script for our awakening. And I know your listeners can't hear where those emphases are, but the drama and the script and that ultimately remembering that we're more than just the drama, right? And so then you insert Jake Weeds into this and suddenly already there's there's so much resonance there, right? The, the recognition that we are just 
transient actors who are performing what it is to be a character. And I, you know, one thing that feels worth, I guess, making clear, and this goes back to the, to potentially the ways in which um, this sort of linking might be seen as violent. I don't, I don't want to ignore, I really want to honor Shakespeare's era and his context. We, I, I don't want to ignore the fact that Shakespeare was living during a very long Protestant Reformation, right? And so there's absolutely and probably fundamentally a Christian version of human experience that pervades his plays. But, and I guess I'll say, we don't even know, and it's not even really likely that Shakespeare had access to any of these Eastern texts, which makes this whole project, I think, all the more remarkable, right? The thinking of these two together. That being said, you know, what sets Shakespeare apart, I think, from the other playwrights of his time is that he was an actor before he was a playwright. That wasn't the case with any of his contemporaries, which is to say he was in this sort of daily practice of emptying himself of himself, right? To, to become another person, to put on another mask. And, you know, I suspect that in all of that emptying and filling, that kind, that, which is a kind of meditative practice, right? that he must have understood what Buddhism perceives as the root of our suffering, right? Which is that we are temporary individuals who earnestly believe that we're, that we're permanent selves. And so I think, you know, the, the quote that you're pointing to here, which is a remarkably metatheatrical moment, right? A character on stage, recognizing that they're a character on stage. Um, there's a, there's such great wisdom there, you know, in those moments. It's, I mean, I, I think of other examples in Shakespeare, you know, when Iago says in Othello, I am not what I am. Or when Richard II says, you know, thus play I in one person, many people. Mm. So there's, and, and that that refers me back, right? Thus play I in one person, many people. One of the things that Jake Lees goes on to say is we have our exits and our entrances. Mm. And if you, I don't want to say subscribe, but if there's something in you that feels what is true is the notion of rebirth. If rebirth feels true to you, how remarkable to imagine that the same player who's exiting is the player who's re-entering, right? Mm. As a different character in a different form. So that 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 moment in As You Like It just feels so rich to me in the context of, of the Eastern spiritual traditions that have been passed down to you and I. Mm. And just out of curiosity, are you do you adhere to any particular tradition or mix of traditions? Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you asked. It's something I wanted to start with. And this goes back to the to the origins of the book. I would I would say first and foremost, I'm a I'm a mindfulness practitioner. I'm a, I'm a meditator in not one lineage. What was so remarkable and a really beautiful invitation to me, I would say, in the origins of this book is that when I when I first brought it to Mandala, to the publisher, what I wanted this book to be about was mindfulness, broadly speaking, right? The ways I had experienced it in teaching Shakespeare. Mm. Mandala came back and said, we really love the alliteration of the Buddha and the Bard. And so I was already in a bit of an inquiry with Buddhism, but I really got to take this as my invitation to, you know, stand on the shoulders of the shoulders of the shoulders, come in knowing very little, but come in, come in as a scholar, right? Um, knowing very little except sort of culturally, right, about Buddhism as it had been presented to me and really put myself through a kind of 
Buddhism 101 course, mm. right? So I, I came in as a as a Shakespearean scholar, which still feels very strange for me to say, but definitely came in as a as an armchair Buddhist. What's what's beautiful about Buddhism, as you know, right, is that there really is no adherence, so to speak. You know, the the Buddha said, "Don't believe me. Sit down, <laughs> right? Sit down and experience it yourself." And so I've had. I've had a lot of time over the years to practice that invitation, but I would not say adhering, so to speak, to to a lineage. Mm, yeah, same. And you know, I, I, I'm in the weird position of knowing a lot about meditation, like the neuroscience mm-hmm. of meditation, the practice of meditation, as it has been communicated by Western counselors, you know, psychologists and therapists and neuroscientists and authors, but I know next to nothing about Buddhism. So mm. that's that's the position I'm in where I I well, I I probably know more about Buddhism than the average American, but still, I I'm very much a western, very much have a, you know, I am a child of Western meditation <laughs> that has been, or, or, you know, meditation that has been communicated by Western thinkers. So, yeah. 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 Well, the, and again, that, I mean, I, I, that's what I find so interesting about, about Buddhism is that you, if you've, if you've had, you know, experiences of impermanence, right. If yes. you've had experiences of suffering, if you've had even those moments, right. As, as you're meditating of realizing that, you know, you are one with everything and the field of interbeing is true, then you know, quote unquote, Buddhism, so Absolutely. to speak, right? It, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, you know, going back to all the world's a stage, mm. it's mm. it's almost like, I don't know, just thinking about that as you were as you were talking about that, it's the the experience that I have continually had in meditation, in practicing non-dual meditation. And I, I tried to use this illustration when I was talking to Richard Lang, who wrote, who, who is a disciple of Douglas Harding, who wrote The Headless Way, um, which was a very cool meditation practice that came out of England. And the it's like the, the various stages that I've gone through with meditation have been you know, first, you know, I'm caught in a river and the river is is the chaos of life and thoughts and emotions and just feeling like I'm being swept away on the current and I feel like I'm drowning and there's a sense of desperation there. Um, and meditation at first is kind of the act of planting your feet in the ground, uh, in the in the riverbed and then just turning around and facing the water as it comes. And so it's like it's just washing over you. You're facing it and experiencing it. But then there's another realization that comes, which is really there is no swimmer. The swimmer is just a character, and you are, in fact, the river itself. You are the totality. You are the stage. And translating that to Shakespeare and to this quote, it's, almost like sometimes that that ego that self is i can see when in my life i have been one of the characters from shakespeare <laughs> from a shakespeare play mm-hmm. there have been times 
you know, during very dark times when I have been Iago. There have been times when I have been Hamlet. There have been times when I have been uh, King Richard, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. There, and, and what you said about Shakespeare reading us better than we have ever read him, it really is a mindfulness. I mean, it, 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 it's help, this is helping it come together for me of how reading Shakespeare can be a mindfulness practice of these are these are just li- his characters are like little avatars of ourselves as we mm-hmm. as we go through life and and the stage the stage is the open stage of consciousness the stage is the open arena of consciousness yeah does that make sense it's like the the all the yeah. world's a stage to say that all the world's this, the stage is to say that that i am the stage and the mm-hmm. characters are the parts of myself the 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 selves that can play out the role and those selves, that feeling, that subjective feeling of being a subjective self behind my eyes, interacting with the world, that feeling is an avatar. It's an illusion. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. self can, and, and Shakespeare, sometimes that, that self plays out these roles that Shakespeare was so astute in pointing out. Am I making any sense? Oh, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm feeling my whole body tingling right now. Okay, good. I'm I, so know, glad. <laughs> it, I mean, it, re, it reminds me of a, of, a, of a really important conversation that I had not so long after this book was published with a, um, with a scholar friend who does a lot of work on, on Shakespeare as well. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about was, you know, in, in this project, in this book project, because I do, I include quotes from Iago, from Richard II, from, right, these really villainous characters who still had a remarkable capacity for self-knowledge, like they knew what they were up to, right? And so what what she was speaking of is the sort of moral dissonance between mouthpiece and message, right? And And what I ended up sort of thinking about and and using in the course of this conversation with her was the um, something that Henry V said, actually, um, which is, there is some soul of goodness in things evil, right? Mm. There is some soul of goodness in things evil. Would men observingly distill it out, right? Mm. And that that distillation, I think I'm less interested in because it, it, it suggests a sort of extraction or the, or the making to, right, the duality again. But what, what she added to this conversation, which I'm so grateful for, is, you know, as you're talking about, Stephen, both the Buddhist non-dual stance, right, which is to say, very simply, there is no other, right, and the Buddhist compassionate stance, right, both of which remind us that not only do we all have a Buddha nature, but ultimately we all are Buddha, right, and so Wisdom can emerge from a deeply flawed character because all of us are in varied states on any given day of ignorance and awakening, right? And there is that part of us, and I think this is what you're talking about, the stage in which we are the stage, we are every character, every character's avatar in the moment. Parts work, maybe we could even talk about, right? But there is a part of us, and that part of us is the whole of us, you know, and that's the paradox that is always already awake. So I, that just what you just said just makes me delights me. <laughs> good, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, I mean it. It really is this extraordinary process of meditation is this extraordinary process of discovering that the the peace and the and the quiet and the openness that you are so desperate for is already there. 
right? And yeah. you are already the stage. You are already this this vast open space, this vast open mm-hmm. arena. And so right now I am already the Buddha, even though I don't feel like it, even though I don't look like it, even though, you know, all, all the caveats, even though I'm deeply imperfect, but I am the Buddha in that my small constrained sense of self is still just taking place in that vast open cathedral in that vast open stage. So you uh, bring, so you you start out the book with a discussion of Henry the Sixth, vigilance in Henry the Sixth. So talk about that. Where how does how does uh, Henry the Sixth come into this? And and for people who don't know, tell give people a very cursory background of the play Henry the Sixth. Oh man, well I'm gonna I'm, I might forego the cursory background of the play if, if I may absolutely because it's I'm, I'm trying to think of how I can do it in a, in a not very um, complex way without ultimately boring your your uh, listeners with a with a summary um, what I what I will tell them to read your book is, yeah will you <laughs> and then we can just we can cut the conversation right now um, no so the, so, so the line I use we'll say from Henry the sixth is um, take your places and be vigilant and I can say uh, what I will say is sort of in the in the context of this play is that the the character who speaks this line is a um, is a French sentinel who says this to his men as they are um, guarding the town of Orleans, which is under siege in this act of the play. And I want to say first of all that I you know the reason I I opened the book with this, and I think this will resonate with you, Stephen, is that you know taking a place, right? Um, putting oneself in a posture, getting into a pose, right? Um, was very resonant for me of, of yoga, of a yoga practice. Um, asana literally means to take a seat, um, which is also what one does to read a book, you know, or to meditate for that matter, right? We sit, we go quiet, we go inward, we listen, everything you and I have just been talking about. Um, what's What ends up happening, you know, in this in this play is that the the sentinels men actually fail to do this right or rather they're um they're in place kind of right but they're not paying attention which also means they're not entirely in place because they're not in the present moment they're also a little grumpy about their roles and i i like to think that shakespeare wrote that in with a little bit of a wink you know ultimately what ends up happening is the english army scales the walls and the french guards have to flee um but i I love, I love this line as a as a personal mantra, and a, and a lot of the shorter lines in this book, I will say, have become sort of daily personal mantras for me. Um, I think of it as a call to a spiritual practice, and a, and a and a reminder, with both within and without the context of the play, that we have to do both, right? First, know our place, right? Who am I? Who is sitting? Who am I? Who is acting? And that might be both in the context of this of this grand all-encompassing stage that we're talking about, right? Um, it also really might be in the in the context of an individual self in that moment and how I am meant to take my next step or my next action. But you know, even then, right? Once we answer that question in a in a given moment or on a given day. Um, 
we're invited to stay vigilant to how that changes, right? What more arises, um, the ways we might codify a story around it and then fail to grow, right? Because we put ourselves within the confines of our own narratives. Mm. So um, I would say, you know, to, to bring it back to Buddhism, to bring it back to meditation um, specifically, you know, you and I both know, your listeners I'm sure know, because we're, we're being sold it so often that there's this great sort of um, contemporary enthusiasm for meditation's relaxing effects or its sleep-inducing effects, right? We've got apps all over the place that are selling us that. And this isn't to say that that resting back isn't utterly critical, right, in these in these times. But I don't want to say but, and yet, right, traditional Buddhist texts emphasized wakefulness. They, they emphasize vigilant wakefulness, right, as a, as a means of shifting that perception right with if if i'm if i'm nodding off in meditation i'm not going to have that that beautiful experience that you were just talking about of not only feeling the river experiencing the river passing by but also turning and realizing i mean that takes a great deal of wakefulness mm. um i think to, to to have that experience um so it's it's only as far as you know the traditional Buddhist texts are concerned, and I suspect most Buddhist practitioners, you know, it's only through that wakefulness and sitting that we can mm, transform our understanding of reality and and not sleep through life. So what I love in this in this sort of opening meditation, and I think of these as meditations, not chapters, is that what the what the French Sentinel and what Buddhism both offer us is sort of the the meaningfulness of the watch, mm. so to speak. You know what? I, I love how you brought up how we so often think about meditation as kind of a health and wellness practice, mm. a health and wellness exercise. And obviously that is true. Obviously that is the case, that it does have many health benefits, and it is wonderful, and it does help us relax, and it does lower stress, and it does help us sleep, and so on. But I think it was, I forget who, where I read this. It might have been Sam Harris um, in his work on meditation, where he, he said, imagine if we marketed reading as a relaxation practice and think of just how impoverished a view of reading that would be. Of course, reading does help us relax. Absolutely. But it is so incidental to reading that to emphasize it is to really kind of miss the point of reading. Reading is one of the most valuable skills that humanity has ever cultivated. Mm. And I think that meditation is absolutely similar. Meditation to me is as valuable a skill as reading. Mm. But... And it is, you know, and I read at night to relax. You know, I always have a fantasy novel to wind down with. It absolutely helps me relax. It chills me out. It's my form of entertainment. It's all of those things. And it is one of the, if not the most, important skill that humanity has ever cultivated. And I think mm-hmm. that meditation is the same. I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that our kind of very Western health health and wellness approach to meditation is true, but very incomplete. And I think that if mm. I, I sometimes worry 
that if we approach meditation with that, then that's what we will get. And there's just so much, there's so much more there. There's, there's a lot more. It includes that, but there's a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally the, the, the difference between falling asleep and waking up. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Our bodies are our garden. Um, Mm, This is mm. second chapter, Iago on cultivating seeds. Yeah, so let me go ahead and just read the whole quote here. Our bodies are our gardens, to the which our wills are gardeners, so that if we will plant nettles or sow lettuce, set hyssop and weed up thyme, supply it with one gender of herbs, or distract it with many, either to have it sterile with idleness or manured with industry, why the power and corrigible authority of this lies in our wills. (laughs) The power and corrigible authority of this lies in our wills. Yeah. So again, you know, this is Iago talking to to Roderigo, um, who is helplessly in love. And Iago is trying to... um, I would say sort of smack him out of it. Um, it's a it's a bit of a problematic quote in context, you know, as you and I have been talking about a little bit, because Iago is essentially the, the, the willful puppeteer of this play, so to speak. And yet we have to attend to the Buddha nature and the wisdom that can arise anywhere, right? And so, uh, you know, what Iago is essentially reminding Rodrigo is that you know we are we are as as human beings we are beings um, abundant with agency right and it's through our own actions I mean some of the verbs you just used there planting weeding <clears throat> manuring right or lack thereof that we are one thing or another and so I I love this body garden metaphor because Iago reminds us to be conscientious about what we want to plant there within us and then uh, diligent in tending to it once it's in our ground. And in in terms of how this passage relates to Buddhism, um, was that, you know, Buddhism makes use of these really wonderful horticultural metaphors as well. Um, One of them is the, you know, the, the Pali word for meditation is bhavana, um, which literally means cultivation, right? To till the terrain, to tend to the soil, to prepare it for crops. Um, farmers perform bhavana when they plant seeds. And so what a gorgeous metaphor for meditation. Um, there's another horticultural metaphor that, that Buddhism uses to describe previous thoughts and actions as seeds, that influence our future thoughts and actions, right? Which is another way of describing karma or cause and effect, right? That our our thoughts and actions of tomorrow will pretty likely resemble our thoughts and actions of today, right? That's the the law of retribution. And this this notion that we're only going to produce suffering gardens if we plant suffering seeds. And and when those um, thoughts and actions become habits, right? Whether those are wholesome habits or unwholesome actions, that's a that's a field of being that that we are wholly responsible for, and so I, I I love that Iago is suggesting here that that field of being, right, that garden is is in our authority all along, mm. um, and so for 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 me this this quote and this is not one I carry around as a mantra; it's a mouthful, as you've just read, um, 
but just a really both sweet and important reminder that you know my my practice if i if i want um if i want the garden that is really going to nourish me is to you know routinely this is the, this is the mindfulness practice right moment after moment inquire into what thoughts and actions i want i want to i want multiplied right because any thought and action is going to propagate Mm, absolutely. The the line that comes to mind is something that a friend always used to say, which is what gets your attention gets you. And so it sounds like what Iago is saying here also, you know, another way to interpret this is what you pay is what you pay attention to is what you sow your garden with. Mm, um mm. Yeah, and which which brings me back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier in terms of attention equals love, right? Mm, mhm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. So let's do one more. So here's a line from Troilus and Cressida. Did I say that name right? Troilus? You did, yeah. Okay, awesome. Troilus and Cressida. And here to do you service and become as new into the world, strange, unacquainted. Mm. I love that it's line. It's new into the world. It's a good line. Have you read Troilus and Cressida, Stephen? I have it's not. not, a, it's not one that, yeah, I have it's, not it's, read it's, Troilus and Cressida, yeah. It never finds itself on, on syllabi, which I guess in some ways is, <laughs> I have to admit it's not among my favorite plays, but I do love this line. Um, so so before we... See. Before we get started with this, though, start. Let's start with the concept of beginner's mind, because that's really what this passage is. Is kind of that's that's what we're shaping this passage towards is the concept mm, of beginner's mm. mind. So, so what is beginner's mind in Buddhism? Ooh, yeah, okay, big question. I I guess where I would start, which is uh, not the easiest entrance, but it's the first thing I think of when you ask this question, is actually a, a quote by the uh, 13th century Zen master Dogen. Um, maybe you've heard this one, Stephen. Um, but he, let me bring it back to myself. He said, to study Buddhism is to study the self. Mm. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Do you want me to say that one again? It's really Yes, please. Good. Yes, please. Yeah. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Mm. And, you know, that last sentence is a particularly hard one, I think, for us to, for us to, really resonate with. I think for me, since you and I keep coming back to meditation practice, I'll, I'll go there. Um, for me, it, it helps to think of that last line in terms of a meditation practice, which, you know, as we've been talking about, like just allows us to observe how quickly thoughts and feelings and emotions come and go, right? And, and what happens for me, I guess I should say at least my experience in the coming and going, I suspect I'm not alone, is that every time something goes before the next thing comes, what I, what I notice is a gap in the story of myself, right? Mm. As, though, as though over time and the, and the longer I sit, and I mean the longer as in, you know, the, the more years I sit, but I also mean, you know, those days where you get those delicious like hour long sits in the morning, 
it starts to feel as though I have the experience of just being a, a series of consecutive flashes of being, right? This is this is what I am in this moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. And what starts to dissolve in this in those gaps, right, is the is the solid narrative of self. Yes. And so for for me, that's that's really when I get to experience um beginner's mind. It's this it's this moment of or it's this experience of of uh every sense being awakened to what's coming um every encounter sort of curious and astonishing i'm i'm thinking right now as i'm talking about a um something a, a teacher said to me many years ago and i'm sure i repeat it slightly differently every time i say it but it really um the the meat of it stuck and it was something like it was a question what is the nature of that thing in the split second before you put a name on it Mm, yes. Right. It's the it's it's such a gorgeous question, and we have so, we have so little moments in our in our daily lives in which we get to experience that gap. But um, you know, I'm sure if you asked me on any other number of days, I'd probably have a different response to what beginner's mind is. But that's that's where I go first. You know what that reminds me of is like. Hmm. I, actually, I I brought up this example to someone else when I was having a conversation with them. And they were like, that, I've never experienced that. What the fuck are you talking about? So anyway, I will give it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's it's when yeah. you wake up in the middle of the night and everything is just a blank. And I don't, and I look at the time, I look at my clock and I don't know what it says. I see the symbols, <laughs> but I can't interpret it. I look around me and I just see the shadows and the objects and the play of light. And it's just that there are no concepts. And I, and I, and I look at the clock and I see the symbols, but I can't impose any symbols upon it or I can't impose any concepts upon it to be able to interpret it. And it's this there it's, and and then I slowly emerge out of that and I'm like, oh, okay, this is this is who I am, this is where I am, this is what time it is. But it's that moment. <laughs> of, yeah. And it's it would be wrong to say it's bliss because bliss is a feeling. And this thing transcends feeling, right? Yeah. That that state transcends a feeling. It it's it's deeper than that. It's more fundamental than that. But it's like that. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I love that. I love that that um, I love that. That's what you're getting at because I think you're right. It it transcends bliss. I think it's I I suspect that what happens in those moments, and I have had those experiences as well. Sometimes on medicine, sometimes in sleep, sometimes in you know mm-hmm. a, any number of situations. Sometimes in meditation, um, is that it's it's not quite bliss. What it is is an absence of suffering. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think about, you know, every once in a while I find myself really transfixed when I'm out in the world on like the on the face of a baby, which I think is maybe another way of getting at the the experience that that you and I are trying to get at, right? This thing that has no language that is seeing things for the first time but has no categories in which to place anything. And so like, you know, there's a there's a very brief moment very very early on in our lives in which we 
can't be disappointed because we don't know expectation and we can't have judgments about people as we're approaching them because we don't yet have categories of like or dislike, you know, right or wrong. And I, I, I think I think there's something there. And I'm just thinking about this person that you've this friend that you're speaking speaking with that was like, I haven't had that experience. And part of me is like, just look at a baby. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Well, you know, you know, and 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 a good way to approach this from the from the other side, I think, is to think about is to think about something that, and this is to my audience, to to anyone listening, is to just think about something that you that you really wanted and that you were anticipating, and then you got that thing, be it a promotion, be it an object, or be it an accomplishment of some kind, and then think back to how long the half-life of that joy lasted. It's so short. Mm -hmm. It is so short. And so like when when I I remember when I when I finally got a position that I really I really wanted it. I was I was so thrilled. I had wanted to have a a position like that for a long time. Finally, I got it. The half life of that joy of that satisfaction lasted for like an evening. (laughs) Yeah, and yeah. that's and when you contemplate that and realize oh we are constantly it isn't bad to pursue that life is life happens because you know civilization happens because of people pursuing that pursuing status yeah. pursuing those rewards all of that that's fine but it's important to be able to observe that and realize, mm. oh, I'm on this perpetual hamster wheel of pursuing something so fleeting. And when I finally get it, it lasts for an hour or it mm. lasts for a minute. And then suddenly all the responsibilities and misery of that thing come tumbling on top of you. And then you just go right back to baseline. And the and that can serve as a realization of, oh, there's actually a prior state to all that. Mm, there, yeah. there's a prior state and that prior state is I think what we're getting at as beginner's mind mm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I, I would even add I, I love that I would, I would even add that there's a, that there's a, a post state right that can, that can um, get us to that place also and uh, you know as you were talking Stephen I was just thinking about that beautiful thing you said at the beginning of our conversation about how you're you, you know, you've you've come to think of your store, of your job, as a as your monastery. Yeah. Right. And so we're we're human. We're going to experiences. We're going to experience those disappointments. We're going to have those half lives of of joy and exhilaration. And yet, if we can find ourselves back in the practice of saying, "Oh, this too is a devotional practice," right? This too, this too is my altar. Um, that's that's a that's a step, you know, back toward back toward that that beginner's mind. Because when something's an altar, when something is your right, who steps into a church and ever finds it boring, right? When you're when you're in that space of divinity, and when you say, I don't care what this is, this is my apartment, this is my storage room, this is the, my basement, right? If you if you decide that this too is where the practice is going to happen, you've made that place holy. And you're going to be, you're just going to be wild 
in in this in this state of newness regularly because when you're in that divine space you know i mean you've experienced it anything can happen mm. so it's the wildness of meditation who knows what's going to arise i think that is a fantastic note to end on yeah. uh lauren Schufrin, thank you so much for joining me it has been an absolute pleasure for people who want to follow your work is there a place online where they can find you um yeah so uh very simply lauren um is my website um if you you know want to know more about um beyond the book i've got an instagram account called uh, shakespeare and mindfulness it's with an underscore so shakespeare underscore and underscore mindfulness I've been a, I've been a little bit off it these days, but there's a four year long archive there of of Shakespeare quotes. Um, so yeah, those would be the the two places I would send people. And and if you um, if this conversation moved you at all today and you're interested in the book, that would that would just delight me. So and it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Stephen. I'm so glad. Yeah, and everyone, please do go buy their book. Uh, it is lovely. Also, I didn't comment on this earlier, but it really is beautiful like just the layout is beautiful it is a it is a beautifully designed book um so yeah, thank yeah. you I, I had nothing to do with it but the but the publisher did a did a stunning well, job they did a um, very so very good job yeah so everyone yeah. please go buy the book it is wonderful it is called buddha and the bard and that is it for this show the music is by 117. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my paid subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, thanks for listening and stay curious. <laughs>